Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes and this is Let's Talk America. Well, today we're going to be focusing as we make the transition well into the new year on what has perhaps been, at least in terms of international policy, one of the most striking events of the new year, one that has captured a lot of attention because I frankly think it took a lot of people's breath away uh, in terms of Donald Trump's decision to use our technological advantage to take out uh, uh, General Soleimani. Uh, who had been one of the key figures, the key figure in fact, in coordinating both the terrorist assaults of the Iranian regime uh, and the efforts they were making in various ways to assert their hegemony uh, in the Middle East. Uh, so we will be talking to one of the great experts on that, somebody that uh, I've been uh, familiar with since my days serving in the Reagan administration, uh, who has the wonderful and uncanny quality of being able not just to see the event, but to see it in the context uh, of the strategic vision and possible outcomes uh, that are involved in it. Should be a very good discussion. You hang on. We'll be right back after this word. Second week of November, I was privileged to participate in the Red Pill Conference in Mesquite, Nevada. It was sponsored by G.W. Griffin's group and it brought together a whole array of activists and conservatives thinking through how we can wake people up to what's really going on in this country. There was a whole series of presentations uh, that addressed political issues, issues of health and other things that are being done uh, to take away our understanding of what's really being done to transform this country into a totalitarian tyranny. If you understand the danger, then you'll want to be watching these DVDs. We're going to put them together in a series. I'll be introducing the different parts of the series, and they'll all be available at imtv.us, the exclusive distributors of this series of views of the Red Pill Conference. Welcome back. Well, I think President Trump was pretty well determined that we were going to start the new year with, as it were, a bang. And we did. Uh, and it was one of those things that uh, took the wind out of the sails of folks who had been sitting back and for a while. And this is, by the way, both the usual sort of Trump enemies and, and some of the other folks who were a little skeptical about this and that. And as the rising tide of Iranian attacks culminating in the attacks on the Saudi oil fields took place, they were, they were wondering, you know, what is Trump going to do something? We can't just sit back and let these people get away with this. And I think they started to suspect that maybe he was, well, bluffing. And, and that, given his style, I suppose it's one of those things that always tickles at the back of your mind because it's larger than life and you can never tell. Uh, and he always seems, as he did right at the beginning of his administration in Syria and now here, he does something that smacks you upside the head and says, don't underestimate this man's determination. And I would have to say, given the possible consequences, don't underestimate his courage, just sheer raw courage, because the act he took puts him in the crosshairs of some of the nastiest people on the face of the earth, and they will now be bending every effort of their will to see whether they can take credit for doing something dastardly to him. Uh, so I think we ought to admire his courage as well as his vision. Um, and in order to do so, I thought it was necessary to try to find somebody I could talk to at a level that would appreciate them both in the context of both the great challenges that we're faced with now, especially in terms of that part of the world in the Middle East, the actors who have come into play, including Russia, uh, and now in ways that I think people who haven't been thinking about it might find a little bit unexpected, the Chinese of all people, sit putting their oar in to play a little bit in the game. Uh, and we'll see what the consequences are. But my guest today is Fred Flight, somebody who has had a great deal of experience thinking these things through. He's now the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. You might have heard his name, you certainly did, uh, when uh, John Bolton uh, was the uh, uh, president's national security advisor. Uh, and uh, because he was his uh, assistant there and a deputy uh, uh, to Donald Trump. And he is now uh, the senior vice, uh, the vi president of, of uh, the Center for Security Policy, he was the senior vice president, and he has served in various national security positions for a long time. He's a good friend, by the way, of somebody who is a good friend of the show and of mine, Frank Gaffney. 
and who has been on uh, several times to talk with us and will hopefully join us again uh, in the future at various times. Uh, welcome to the show and thank you for being with us, Fred. It's, it's really nice to have you on uh, and I think it'll be of great benefit to folks. I've been reading uh, your articles, uh, including the one that you just, uh, uh, just wrote uh, in terms of uh, the implications of the planned attack uh, that uh, took place and what it means in terms of Trump's policy. Um, and I hope, I'm hoping that you'll share with the audience a little bit your sense, uh, because obviously the first thing out of the mouths of his critics were things calling him all kinds of names and pretending that he'd done something terrible. Uh, but in point of fact, uh, it turns out that he has uh, done something that I think, aside from capturing the attention of people in the world, sends some signals that some folks have been waiting for and that I think should be pretty reassuring to people who have to depend on the courage and will and vision of the leadership of the United States. And you've been writing very capably about that. What do you think? Well, thanks, Al. It's great to be here. Uh, you know, I always think of you as Ambassador Keys because of your important work as a deputy ambassador to the great Jean Kirkpatrick, who was an idol of mine and became a good friend. So it's, it's such an honor to be on your show today. Thank what you. we're seeing right now are, are liberals scrambling to try to explain how the death of Soleimani was somehow a bad thing. <laughs> As if the president can't kill a terrorist leader who has killed or maimed thousands of Americans and was planning to kill more because his organization would respond with terrorism or his terrorist state would respond with terrorism. And you know, that type of thinking, which has been going on for a long time, just emboldens uh, these nations and terrorist groups who, who want to destroy this country. We know that American weakness is destabilizing, that a strong America promotes global stability and promotes American national security. Hmm. And, and the president laid down a marker here. He was not in any hurry to conduct military a military action against Iran or Iranian interests. And, you know, he, he vetoed the decision by his advisors to strike Iran over the summer after they downed that unarmed drone because in the president's view, it was disproportionate to kill 100 or 200 Iranians for shooting down an unarmed drone. He didn't think that was appropriate, but he has laid down a marker that killing or threatening to kill American citizens is a red line that he's not going to let Iran cross. And it's just so reassuring. Now, he has to use the term red line, but that's what it is, because we saw so many red lines laid down by the Obama administration that that uh, the Syrians ignored, the Iranians ignored, the Russians ignored. Well, you and when, when you undermine American credibility, you know, you're really undermining global security. Well, I, I, I had to interrupt you for one second because Obama was in the habit of drawing red lines and then saying whoops and stepping back made you think they were actually yellow lines, but <laughs> not a good image for the American people to be projecting. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think that's right. And it's, I think we have to make it clear that the fact that the president is taking steps to protect U.S. citizens does not mean he wants to get into a war with Iran. I know that's what his critics want to say, but the president could not have been clear that he does not want to do that. And, and I think we're seeing President Trump struggling with his promise to keep us out of unnecessary wars and to end what he thinks are conflicts without end, but also defend U.S. interests and U.S. citizens. And we saw how this came out after U.S. citizens were killed uh, in Iraq by Iranian airstrikes and after the raid by these Iranian uh, Shiite-backed militias uh, in Iraq. I mean, we now know where the president is, and I hope that the Iranian government is going to get the message. Well, I, I think it was actually calculated to be a kind of message, though people don't understand how understated it was. I mean, there was the prelude to it where you could begin to suspect that there was this great reluctance and that he felt sort of hidebound by his promises and when it wasn't able to move. And then suddenly he strikes. But think about it for a second. I thought that one of the most breathtaking things about it was that we have now reached a stage technologically uh, where he could actually both, and it's a combination of things, it's the technology, but it's also the intelligence, right? The two things working together accurately and well so that you can make a strike that essentially chops off the very heads you want to chop off. 
and doesn't have other repercussions. Um, wouldn't that be the hoped for use of the advantages that the United States still has uh, in dealing with these situations in the world? Uh, I think it is, but it also sends another message. And I was remember thinking it as I was watching the, the reels of uh, you know the, the uh, uh, Iranian high officials and weeping and so forth and so on that this terrorist has passed from the earth, and I couldn't help it, Fred. I was thinking myself in the back of my mind. I wonder whether they're crying for him or crying because they have to stand out there in the open all this time in order to go through these ceremonies, if you get my drift. It, it seems to me he sent a somewhat wider message about the possibilities of uh, U.S. resolve. I think that's right. And look, Soleimani, there were opportunities for both President Obama and President Bush to kill him on many occasions. And the arrogance of the man, not, I mean, he wasn't supposed to leave Iran under the nuclear deal. And he's been in Iraq to organize Iran's basic occupation of Iraq. Uh, he's been to Syria where he's orchestrated efforts that have killed thousands of Syrians. And the fact that he has, you know, pranced around I I Iraq thinking that, you know, the U.S. would never strike him is just un unbelievable. But I, I believe there really is solid intelligence that more attacks against the U.S. were coming and that's why when you hear all these Democrats saying that, well, now more attacks are coming because we killed Soleimani, you know, it just doesn't add up. Well, it doesn't add up, but it also shows their mindset, doesn't it? Because they apparently, or at least they profess in the stances they take to believe uh, that it's a proper role for a military strategist and tactician to take to wait until the enemy uh, strikes uh, a, a devastating blow and then respond. Uh, but in the real world, it's usually better to be apprised of what the enemy is planning to do and then strike in your time and in your way to disrupt his ability to do it. And in this case, that meant one person and his cohorts were, were struck down. And meanwhile, possibly hundreds or thousands of lives were saved. Don't they get this? I think you're right. And look, our old friend Jean Kirkpatrick, that's where she would be. She mm. knows that you have to stand up to evil. That was the point she made in her book, Dictatorships and Double Standards. The left never wants to stand up to evil. They think they can negotiate with evil. They think they can appease evil. And, and the Iranians had good reason to believe we wouldn't do anything. There's been so many provocations through two administrations where we did nothing. We just stood by. And, and I mean, it starts with a nuclear deal, which I know we're going to get into. But I think Iran was stunned that such a decisive step was taken against such a senior Iranian leader. And I hope that they get the right message from that, that although President Trump does not want a war, he will respond aggressively again if U.S. citizens' lives are put at risk. I also think it might have sent a message, Fred, about constraints. Because I noticed during my little tenure at the U.N. years ago, that people had a tendency to assume that in our formulations and in our approaches and in the way we handled things, we were going to act with respect for the rules and the generally acceptable behaviors and so forth and so on. Um, and, and I think that in his own way, both in policymaking and in, in, in action, uh, President Reagan was somebody who understood that you can't let people think that way. You cannot let the lawless think that the law is going to bind you to stand still so that they can stick the knife through your heart. Uh, you will give yourself permission to move out of their way or to strike in such a way as to thwart the blow. Uh, and, and I think letting these guys think that we were going to be bound by rules that they spit on uh, was a, a way of, uh, that lures them into miscalculation. And, and I hope and pray that this is what has happened now, uh, at the same time that I think some people out there would say, well, that's inconsistent because we're supposed to respect these basic rules of justice, and here's Alan Keyes, he's supposed to be a Christian guy, and he's saying we should do these kinds of things. And I always remember David eating the showbread. You know, that, and, and Christ was, was, in his own way, a good strategist because he understood that the rules were not made for the righteous, and <laughs> they were made for the unrighteous. And that when it comes time to do what is right according to God's will, you do it with respect to God's rule for what is right. 
not God's rule for what will give advantage to the enemies of his righteousness. Um, and that allows you to act with circumspection and with a decent heart, but at the same time to act when your enemies think you're going to be bound by the very things they disrespect in you and, and therefore count on to destroy you. Does that make sense? Because I think that that's actually very sophisticated thinking for Trump. It does. And, you know, I want to add something else about the UN that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, another journalist was talking to me yesterday. He asked me if I was surprised that Russia and China blocked a presidential statement condemning the uh, attack on, on the U.S. embassy. I said, I'm not surprised. It's the U.N. The U.N. is always leaning against the United States. That's why President Trump doesn't rely upon the United sure. Nations. That's why he doesn't go to the U.N. first to ask for permission before we use military force to defend our national interests. That's what President Reagan was. It's where President Bush was. It's not where the Democratic Party is going. But it is an important part of President Trump's America first strategy for national security that we don't ask for permission from Europe or for the United Nations to take necessary steps to defend our security and our national interests and our, and our economy and our freedom. And I mean, that's where John Bolton, that's where John Bolton is. I know that's where you are. And it's an important part of this administration. I think it is a big strength uh, for the president and why many Americans support him. Well, and, and, and with good reason. It, it, come, it strikes home, as it were, because the point you just made is a point that I think is very close to home and that you can see in the response of folks like Nancy Pelosi this sense that the Commander-in-Chief of the United States military, responsible for making sure that the United States does not fatally succumb uh, to the stratagems and attacks of its enemies, uh, when we are under sustained attack, uh, the chief executive has to wait and ask permission of a dilatory uh, uh, House or Senate in order to deal with the situation in a way uh, that advantageously protects the lives and interests of the American people. Um, they apparently think that the Constitution requires this, but I don't see it anywhere. Quite the contrary. I think that, that when you look at the founders and their discussion, one of the things that they prided themselves on, I think, is that they established a unitary executive vested with the whole power of the executive so that when exigency required it, you could move with secrecy and dispatch. It was a phrase they used a lot to deal with the threat. And you asked for forgiveness afterwards, if need be. But in this case, what's to be forgiven? Oh, by the way, I took out an implacable enemy of the United States responsible for thousands of deaths, and now y'all uh, should, what, string me up for this? This doesn't make any sense. And I think people- You know, it is, it, it, it is even asking for permission because the War Powers Act simply requires the president to inform Congress within 30 days. There's laws concerning covert action, which asks the president to inform the top congressional leaders, the Gang of Eight, in advance but if he chooses not to, it simply says he has to notify them as soon as possible with the reason why they did notify him. And you and I know why he did notify Congress. Of course we do. Because Congress would have leaked the operation. They would have worked to stop it. I don't think the president wanted Adam Schiff to know anything about this raid before it was launched, given the cascade of leaks that Schiff has said. And Alan, I don't say that lightly. I'm close to members and staff of the House Intelligence Committee, and they're just appalled at the damage done mm. to intelligence oversight by Adam Schiff, and this started before he was chairman. Well, with the maneuvering they've been doing to try to embarrass Trump, I, I sadly would have been prey to the suspicion that if they could have found a way to leak the information so as to embarrass the result, thwart it, that is, make him look foolish, uh, they would have done it. And, yeah. and in that kind of a treacherous environment, for Nancy Pelosi to think that she should be in the inner circle so she can communicate with the mad squad and they can communicate with their friends out there working with people who are trying to kill us, doesn't make any sense. It's a sad day for the United States that I have to say that, but it's true. Uh, and I think we have to depend on the president to know it's true. Um, another question. Two things that always are in the back of my mind as I look at this situation. Uh, one of those things is Russia, and the other of those things is China. And I noticed an, an article recently, um, which I think I encountered um, on uh, CSP, because uh, I look at you all every day practically, see what, you're, oh, what, you. you're, what wisdom 
uh, you're sharing. Uh, and it was about the maneuvers uh, that uh, Russia and China held with the Iranians. What did you make of that? Well, I think Russia and China are always looking to cash in on any problem that, that, that the United States is facing. But look, both regimes are, are, are dictatorships, and the advantage of a dictatorship uh, is frankly a, a consistent foreign policy, always fighting towards the same goal. And they tend to be regimes that don't worry about human rights or ethics. They do whatever is best for them. And frankly, it, it gives them an advantage because they're not constrained by international law, international ethics. They don't worry about the UN. They just use the UN against the United States. Uh, but I mean, if they're conducting maneuvers right now, it's not surprising. It's just what they do. Do you think that uh, they're trying to help the Iranians send a message? Because I know that one of the Iranian top, uh, top people there uh, basically said that it was some kind of a signal that the United States was not going to have freedom of action and we ought to get out of the region. That seems to be their stated goal. Uh, to what extent do you think Russia and China are ready to cooperate in that goal? To cooperate with Iran, I, I think they're already cooperating with Iran. I, I don't think it's going to have a, a significant effect. It's going to be an annoyance. But, uh, you know, Russia is already collaborating with Iran to build nuclear facilities. They help Iran build, rebuild the Bashir light water reactor. China's been talking to Iran for some time about resuming its nuclear collaboration with Iran. Uh, so much uh, banned technology on missiles and nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear facilities has come from China. And the U.S. has sanctioned China repeatedly on that. So this type of collaboration is disappointing, but it's not new. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to lead us, I think, into uh, what will be the subject, uh, I hope, of our next segment, which is what, ha what comes next? You know, because when you're dealing with a situation like this, I think it's fraught with implications that can run the gamut all the way up uh, to the outbreak of, you know, some kind of actual warfare in the region. Short of that, you still have a lot of maneuvering going on and all of it being played out in a election year in the United States. What effect do you think, just as our closing word in this segment, uh, that election hanging out there in the future uh, is going to have on the thinking uh, that uh, Donald Trump and his administration have to do as they deal uh, with the, the realities in the Middle East in the election year ahead? I think the president will simply keep pushing forward to make the right decisions, but there are always states who are calculating that they may get a better deal under a new president. Hmm. And uh, right now they're looking at the U.S. Uh, the 2020 election very closely to see who they think is going to win uh, this November. And I, I think it's pretty, it's a pretty unsettled picture. I, I, I don't think there's many nations who would be betting that President Trump is going to lose. Well, when we come back after this very brief message that's going to follow, I'd like to, to follow you a little bit. I'll, I'll start out by raising the, uh, the question again of the election year, but in the specific context of this whole sham impeachment process that we've been, uh, I think, subjected to by the Democrats, which has now reached the parlous state that you would have expected since they're doing something they think is going to advantage them uh, but they did it in a way that has thoroughly embarrassed them. And I think they're probably having second thoughts about what it's actually going to do for their political good. Depending on how that calculation works out, God knows what treacherous things they'll be willing to do in the course of the next year to achieve their political objectives. But it could have an impact uh, on uh, the toing and froing that would then affect calculations uh, of what we should do in our foreign policy that, you know, it used to be the case. We could count on our leadership in this country to be not totally free, but more or less free of those calculations, at least in an open way. Those days appear to be gone, and I'll be talking with Fred about what that means. Hi, I'm Alan Keyes. 
I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the Health Ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the Health Ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. We're back. Uh, I'm talking to Fred Flights, who is the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Uh, he also uh, served as the deputy assistant to President Donald Trump. Uh, he was B John Bolton's chief of staff at the White House and a deputy assistant uh, to the president uh, as well. So as he talks to us, uh, this is a voice that used to be heard by Donald Trump and his associates. I kind of wish you were still being heard, uh, I, I have to say, Fred. But I have, no, I talk, to, I talk to the president sometimes. I, I talked to him at the Hanukkah party a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to see him in January. Very good. Well, I hope he's still listening because I, I, I find, even in the course of our discussion, uh, that th there's a difference between uh, knowledge, as we all know, and wisdom. Uh, and the thing I have always loved about you, Frank Gaffney, others, uh, is that you think in that thoroughgoing way that helps people to achieve a certain kind of wisdom. Um, not just in dealing with the facts, but in dealing with their implications in the context of the larger questions uh, that the polity is facing. And that's something that our citizens uh, need, even when it's not being supplied by our leadership, uh, because they can have a leading role, especially at election time, uh, in terms of uh, conditioning. Uh, what are the prospects uh, for this leadership? And that's going to be happening in the next year. So as you look at the situation the administration will be facing, the country will be facing in terms of these people who have obviously their own stratagems for limiting and maybe reducing uh, our ability to protect ourselves and our interests in the world. What impact do you think the elections, the whole impeachment process and Fuhrer, all of that is going to have uh, on the calculations that are being made by foreign governments, friend and foe, around the world? Well, I think it's very sad that Trump derangement syndrome has really poisoned the previous bipartisan approach to national security where politics was supposed to end at water's edge. And it just seems that the Democrats want to block everything the president does, not just nominations, but any policy he puts forward. And I'm sure you saw Joe Lieberman's fabulous op-ed yesterday in the Wall Street Journal where he said, look, Democrats have to unite behind the president here and admit that killing Soleimani was a good thing and that he was a bad man. And you just can't see Democrats are going to step up to do that because they just can't bring themselves to say that the president did something right. He did something that's helping our country. Right. I fear that other nations are watching what's going on during the election. And it may be causing some of them to make various calculations or decisions that uh, are, are making it harder for the president to get things done. And, and uh, you know, we see uh, stories of Nancy Pelosi going to Spain for a conference on, on the, um, the Paris Climate Accord, where she says we're still in. No, Alan, we're not still in that accord. But it's a, really a bad message, and it's unprecedented for a member of Congress to be uh, saying things like that by pursuing their own private foreign policy in contradiction of the president. You can imagine if a member of Congress did that during uh, President Obama's time in office. Uh, so I think it's complicating uh, the president's foreign policy, but I don't think it's going to stop him or slow him down. Well, you know, I think in terms of Obama's policy, they actually knew, didn't they, that there were things they were doing that would be an embarrassment if they were made public because they would look like the kind of uh, servile appeasement that actually feeds the appetites of terrorists and tyrants. Uh, I think Obama did that, tried to keep it secret, is no secret any longer, uh, but we are all of us haunted by that notion 
uh, that we have a choice here now in America, apparently, between people who are going to make head against those who are killing and threatening in lawless and terroristic ways. People around the world, including uh, Americans and our forces elsewhere, uh, positions to help people protect and build their nations. We're, we're going to face their, their nasty opposition. And meanwhile, we are dealing uh, with opposition forces in terms of Donald Trump, who seem uh, to want to return to policies of expensive appeasement so that we're not only being subjected to terrorism, we're secretly funneling money into the pockets of terrorists so they can kill us uh, in a more prolonged fashion. I can't see how that is going to do the Democrats any good to stay in that position. I, I don't either, and I, I, hope they, I hope Americans will, will recognize what the president has done to make our nation safer. And everything you just said was so obvious with the nuclear deal with Iran, all these compromises that were triggering away our national security interests were being done in secret. But mm. at the same time, Ben Rhodes and the NSC was running an echo chamber to con uh, liberal members of the press who were more than happy to, to say various things about this nuclear deal that just weren't true or papering over its huge weaknesses, like letting Iran continue to enrich uranium, very weak verification, letting Iran have a plant that would produce plutonium. And we still see these people spinning, trying to say that this was a good deal that made us safer. This is a weak deal that emboldened Iran to act worse. And we know Iran's behavior, Iran's belligerent behavior, worsened significantly weeks after the nuclear deal was announced in, in July of 2015. Now that raises a, a question, at least tangentially for me, because um, we were talking about the Chinese being involved in these uh, uh, joint maneuvers. We know that uh, they themselves um, are engaged from time to time in, in, in the effort to try to um, push us, put us in a box in terms of uh, the freedom of the seas in the Ch South China Sea and their exertion of their uh, kind of naval power. Do you see them gaining or why do they think they will gain some advantage in even tangentially making themselves part uh, of what is happening between the United States and Iran in the Middle East. What do they get out of this? Well, look, Russia and Iran are always trying to exploit weaknesses, uh, make, make uh, uh, agreements and deals with nations who are at odds with the United States. Uh, look at Venezuela. Look at the huge multi-billion dollar deals that Russia and China have had with Venezuela over the past 10 years. Well, why? Because Venezuela was an enemy of the United States and under Chavez and the current president was frozen out. Russia and China rushed in. I might mm -hmm. add, Iran did too. And I, unfortunately, this is just the way that these two nations act. Act. They are adversaries. They take advantage of, of, of the global situation to the disadvantage of the United States. But I think in the public mind, uh, especially given the way things worked out, the supposed end of the Cold War, the disintegration of, of what was called the Soviet Empire, uh, and so forth and so on, and now the advent of a different kind of regime, uh, still in its own way, I think, well, if not a totalitarian, authoritarian. Uh, they have different attitude toward religion and other sorts of things, so it's not, we're not just dealing with the same uh, communist uh, situation, and they obviously have a different situation in terms of what was called their empire, no longer being directly uh, under control, and they're having problems in the Ukraine and, and elsewhere. But it used to be fairly easy to assume that there would be some kind of cooperation between the Chinese and the Russians. I think people have kind of, uh, you know, in the general public's mind, that is no longer a duo, but it seems really to still be operating as one. I think the relationships between Russia and China are complicated. I don't think either nation likes the other. They cooperate because it's to their advantage against the United States. I think they're both deeply distrustful. I think the Chinese look down on Russia as a declining power and are eyeing huge areas of Siberia that it would like to occupy one day. I think the Russians know this. So we, we see these uh, meetings where it appears that both nations are fast friends and are cooperating. But I think privately, it's a different story. Also, though, because uh, what I'm thinking in the back of my mind, as we show resolve and strength, that has to affect the calculations of others. Russia being directly involved in that situation has a stake in not seeing things escalate. 
to a confrontation with the United States. Um, so to the extent that it becomes clear that the Iranians are acting up in a way that's going to lead to that sort of a prospect, isn't this likely to have an effect on, on the calculations of the Russian government uh, that will seek at the very least to try to temper that outcome? This, Alan, is why the president believes the U.S. has to have some type of working relationship with the Russians, because we do have mutual interests, and we sometimes have to work together. And it, it certainly is something we should be looking at right now, going to the Russians and say, look, would you weigh in with the Iranian leadership right now? You don't want a war either. Explain them what's going to happen if they start a series of terrorist attacks against the United States. I think coming from Russia, it would be credible. I don't know what the Iranian leaders would listen or not. And the president gets criticized roundly for saying that we have to have a working relationship with Russia. Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal on Earth. It is actively trying to undermine U.S. interests in Europe. I don't think we should be appeasing Russia, but I think we should be talking with Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, that would mean, wouldn't it? And Because uh, I think part of what you just said is absolutely true, but it then plays back into the present sort of situation in such a way that, um, though I'm not sure in other respects, if I were just calculating politically, a part of me looks ahead to the prospect of a whole lot of witnesses coming forward and, and a big, the trial of Donald Trump turning into the trial of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Nancy Pelosi and all these other people who have in fact been up to their elbows with the Clintons and everybody else in all kinds of corrupt self-dealing when it comes uh, to various aspects of our relations, whether with the Ukraine in particular or with other countries in general. And, and part of me just thinks, yeah, a lot of that dirty laundry is going to come out and these guys are going to wish they had never heard the word impeachment. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, but on the other hand, I think if you remove this expeditiously off the table, it removes that occasion for miscalculation from the minds of foreign governments, and it opens the way to something that I think is essential. You're right, we don't need to be all buddy-buddy with the Russians, but neither does it serve our best interest to neglect the fact that we have common strategic interests and common adversaries in the world, um, and that we need to be able to talk together and work together even in order to deal with that. Am I wrong about this? I, I think that's right, and I, I also believe that ultimatums to the Russians or the idea that somehow we're gonna sanction the Russians into behaving the way we want them to behave that's never going to work. And when we try to do those things and they succeed, when we you know, draw red lines and we don't follow them up, we're just undermining our, our, our credibility in the global stage. And we're undermining our credibility with the Russian government. And, and it's interesting. You may remember when, when the Russians invaded Georgia under the Bush administration. The Bush administration criticized that, but they didn't, it, they didn't issue any ultimatums like, you'll be sorry if you don't get out, which mm. is what the Obama administration did. Russia invaded Ukraine because Condi Rice and the Bush administration realized we have only so much capability to make the Russians change their behavior and we shouldn't make promises we can't keep, we shouldn't make threats that we can't back up. That was not the way uh, the Obama administration operated. I always think in those circumstances as well that maybe we shouldn't stand against actions that we may someday have to take ourselves. Um, and I say that, not trying to dramatize things too much or push them too far, but being as how there are forces in the world seeking to orchestrate the collapse of our borders and the loss of control uh, of our ability to uh, uh, control what kind of people and what kind of intentions are brought into our country across our borders, uh, it's not far-fetched to believe that we might have to ourselves take some action at some point, as we have done in the past, to tell you the truth, every now and again, uh, when people think that they're going to be able to compromise our ability to defend ourselves uh, by using our neighbors to the south against us. Uh, does that figure in our thinking? Because sometimes I think we have to also have a sense, not of constraints, but of possible uh, interests, uh, that we don't want to go too far in chastising others, for things that we still have to keep in the quiver of our reserves. I, I think that's part of America first, and it's part of the president's belief that sometimes the United States has to take unilateral action to defend its security interests, 
And we may sometimes have to do this, even though Europe doesn't want us to. And you remember all the arguments against us get out of the nuclear deal. The main argument was, well, it's going to upset the Europeans. Hmm. That is not an argument that carried any weight with President Trump. We, yeah. we take national security actions because they're in the interest of our country, not because the European elite don't want us to. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that that's one of his virtues, uh, that he is actually, how can I put it, not excessively sensitive. And what people have missed, and, uh, and you can help folks to understand this a little bit, uh, the stance that he took with respect to NATO, which everybody was getting all hot under the collar about and pretending it was somehow anti-NATO and so forth and so on, I never really understood it that way. Uh, because I think you have to allow both the United States and then you have to encourage an alliance like NATO to be adjusting in terms of both the use of its resources and the expectation of responsibilities. And that redistribution from a time when the United States was in a way the only factor that could have done certain things because other people were prostrate, right? When we started out in that endeavor, they were prostrate, they needed our help economically and in every other way. That's changed dramatically. Uh, and I think to encourage the continuation of that false balance would have ended up destroying NATO. Whereas in fact, introducing the need for a redistribution of responsibility and doing it in a very serious way, which the president had, has, uh, actually serves the survival of the alliance. Am I wrong about that? I think you're right. You know, America first means fairness. It means equal burden share. And U.S. presidents have been complaining for a long time, and it's been getting worse in recent years as European states have reduced their military budgets so they can spend on their social assistance and let the U.S. pick up uh, what they're supposed to be paying. When nations do that, when they walk all over us, they're again undermining our credibility. That's the main reason the president said, I'm not going to stand for this. You have to carry your own weight. You have a requirement to spend 2% on defense. You shouldn't be putting it all on the United States. And I mean, he hasn't said this, but I mean, implicit in his position is that when you do this and we ignore you, uh, you're, you're undermining American credibility. And that's not something the president's going to go along with. Hmm. Well, if you don't mind my changing the uh, focus a little bit of our, our discussion, uh, though it involves some of the same kind of thinking, I believe. There, there are two things very much on my mind uh, that um, I discussed them uh, when he's on the air with us with Frank Gaffney, uh, but which I also think are, are still uh, an important part. One of the things heartened me uh, about what has happened in, in the last year or so with the Trump administration was, first of all, the elevation of a, of a serious and judicious concern with the human rights or, or uh, God-endowed rights, or however you want to refer to them in our context, and how fundamental they are to the optic through which the United States has to view itself and the world, so that we can't simply look away uh, from things that are happening uh, that, are, that are disturbing to respect for human dignity and rights. Uh, and doing it in a way that is consistent with our practical policies, but that nonetheless makes it clear that this is still a fundamental part of the character of America's involvement in the world. Uh, and we see things going on with the persecution of Christians, the Uyghurs by the Chinese, and so forth and so on. Uh, do you think that it's still important for us to be taking clear uh, approaches uh, to those things, not necessarily in terms of this or that kind of military stuff, because that's not always involved, but just a, a credible and informed and intelligent way of presenting to the world uh, the priority that needs to be attached to respect for these things as nations are behaving. Absolutely. And, and, and focusing on human rights and the persecution of Christians is something that the Trump administration has talked about frequently. And it's tried to find a way to balance these concerns with other deals and arrangements that we have to, to, to strike. And it's hard with China right now, with the crackdown in Hong Kong, with the persecution of the Uyghurs, the persecution of the people in Tibet, the persecution of Christians in China. Uh, it's hard to make a deal with this country, but we have to find a way to service the interests of the United States and also deal with these issues at the same time. And it's, it's very difficult to do. And it's interesting that as uh, Americans or uh, critics of the, of the administration are complaining about the persecution uh, of of, of journalists and the human rights record of Saudi Arabia, which is abysmal, and we have to speak out against that. 
these liberals would like us to cut off Saudi Arabia completely, but they don't complain at all about what's going on in China. Mm. There has to be a balance to keep the human rights issues in play, but also negotiate on other fronts because we simply can't cut off every nation on earth with a bad human rights record. That's what Jimmy Carter tried to do, and we know what a disaster his foreign policy was. Right. Well, see, I think it's an important, this was one of the things I think Ronald Reagan did well, uh, and the people who served him did well years ago, and that was to understand that sometimes the capable, intelligent, and rational articulation of priorities in an area like human rights uh, can be as or more important uh, than direct action, which may or may not be effective, because you're trying to have direct action in areas where you have no direct involvement. And that's very difficult to do, to be frank about it, and, and also maybe inadvisable if we are still a nation that believes that the end result of our, our, our understanding of the system we want among nations is not to abolish nationhood and erase borders, but to have nations that have a sense of their own identity who are capable of cooperating because they stand on a common ground understanding of what is lawful and just and right. Uh, and we are still building toward that common understanding. Um, do you see the possibility of a, of a you know, because I think that one of the things people did pretty well during the Reagan years was to articulate those policies in a compelling way. Does that actually help? I agree with you, and I would like to see a government structured like that, but we have so many challenges right now with this administration. We spoke off the air about staffing challenges and, and getting the president's national security team properly staffed with people who fully support his policies. The State Department is still not fully staffed. There's too many holders from the Obama administration. And to do some of the ambitious things you're talking about, the president has to get his hands around the entire national security bureaucracy. He hasn't achieved that yet. I know he has plans to try to do it. I think some of it is going to be done in the second term. And, uh, you know, we have to team up and help them get this done. Well, that's right. That's why I think it's going to be critically important for a lot of folks. And, and, you know, I think across a range now of people, folks who were skeptical, maybe even in opposition when Trump was first elected, have been convinced by his actions and activities and results in some of these areas uh, that, uh, that there are good possibilities here and good results in uh, a number of areas. What do you see as the prospects, particularly from the point of view of what he has done so far and what he will be capable of doing, hopefully, even in the course of this election year, um, that that is actually, I think, a winning issue for the president as he faces re-election. I think it's quite a winning issue. And I think it's part of his America First strategy of not uh, giving in to the foreign policy establishment, which simply wants to strike deals for the elite, deals that benefit uh, European states, relying on uh, the United Nations, which is very anti-American. We want a, 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 a foreign policy that defends American interests and our values. And that's something that's been lacking for a long time. Well, I uh, would end on a note, because I'd like to ask you something. And I, I, it's, a, it's a little bit of a personal question, I guess. But um, I hope, hope it's not uh, offensive in any way. But um, I, I am one of those people. I started out as kind of a a Trump skeptic, yes, during the course of the campaigning and all of this. Uh, and it wasn't so much anything that he said uh, as the fact that when you sat and compared what he said to where he was to where he had been, you wondered whether or not that disjunct was just the result of wanting the prize, yes? And he had figured out why the crown was lying on the ground. There's this whole neglected constituency and I'm gonna rally it. He did, he succeeded, he picked the crown up, he put it on his head, he's president of the United States. And, and then he could have done what he pleased, and instead, he, he, has been, uh, he has been, I think, doing his best, with, and that's why they hate him so much, to do what he promised. Uh, and, and coming to a better understanding all the time of what those promises really uh, entail. But one of the times when I felt a little taken aback and was wondering about uh, my own sort of change of judgment, uh, was when he parted company with John Bolton and in the way that it happened. Uh, you may know a little bit about that. You don't have to talk at, at all out of school. Uh, but am I correct in uh, coming to a kind of more balanced sense uh, of that? Because it, it did take me aback. And it was one, one of the few things that has happened in the Reagan years, uh, in the uh, um, uh, Trump years, rather, 
uh, that gave me pause and uh, about, you know, well, gosh, am I wrong that this is a promise keeper? What, what, what do you say to folks like me? Well, I met John Bolton when he held your old job, Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations. And we're old friends. I've known him 30 years. And he, he's a man of incredible convictions. I think he was a great choice for national security advisor. But you and I know that there will be times when a presidential advisor and a president have major disagreements and have a falling out. And in an instance like that, it, it's appropriate for the advisor to move on. Mm. Uh, and these calls right now for president for uh, Bolton to testify before the Senate. I know he's expressed willingness to do so if he's uh, subpoenaed. Keep in mind, Alan, that he is a conservative Republican, a principled one, and the Democrats may be careful for what they wish for <laughs> when they uh, call for John Bolton to testify. He's not going to help these far-left Democrats destroy this president or to destroy the presidency. Well, I have confidence in that. He, he has always struck me as an honorable person. I think you certainly strike me as one. And I hope that uh, the expertise, the voices, the sense uh, of America's character and destiny that you represent so capably uh, will continue to have uh, constructive bearing on uh, the decisions the president takes. Because I think it represents the foundation that can most capably support uh, the strategic vision that he has projected for America into the world today. Uh, thank you for coming on and, and for sharing your thoughts and wisdom with us. I hope every now and again you wouldn't mind uh, returning to the show and, and renewing our, uh, our sense of where things stand because I think people greatly benefit uh, from the chance to hear someone like yourself, experienced, intelligent, knowledgeable, think things through in a way that's not just imbued with the silly frenzy that unfortunately mars our political landscape these days. Uh, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it very much. You, and I wish you Godspeed in your work ahead. Thank you. And that's it for us today. Um, I hope that you all have benefited because I think that the perspective, that as I called it, synoptic vision, bringing together the different elements so that you can see how things work together don't let the reports you see and other things that are going on keep you from looking for that kind of wisdom so that you can take account of the fact that all these different threads have to be brought together into a cord of policy that will hold the weight uh, of America's survival in the world. Uh, and that, I think, is coming into focus in the Trump administration. Uh, and we need to help out in the business of making sure that he'll have a chance to fully accomplish um, that task and show what can be done when you do. Uh, ponder that and join us again here at Let's Talk America. <laughs>